If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. According to data from the FBI, over 50% of murder victims each year are killed by someone known to them, such as a significant other, a co-worker or an acquaintance. Out of that 50%, almost half of those victims are killed by members of their own family. People who are killed by members of their own family, ultimately portrayed by their own blood, this week are mysteriously listed. Number 5. Rachel Panoski Rachel Panoski knew her half-brother Matthew her whole life. He was 10 years older than her, but instead of a protective big brother, Matthew allegedly took advantage of the trusting little girl. When Rachel was five and Matthew was 15 years old, he sexually assaulted her. Charges were eventually sought against Matthew and he'd be sentenced to probation for the assault. After this, Matthew would bounce around between his parents and grandparents until he finished his probation at age 19. Despite how hard it would have been to still have her abuser a part of her life, Rachel managed to recover from her trauma, and by 2013, she had a child of her own. She was living with her one-year-old son in an apartment on Kite Street Mission, located about 40 miles east of Vancouver, Canada. On March 16, 2013, Matthew went to Rachel's home. He told her he wanted to move past what happened and he apologised for molesting her as a child. At some point during the conversation, a friend messaged Rachel to check on her. Rachel would reply, telling her friend the conversation was quote-unquote good but emotional, but that she was tired and she hoped that Matthew would leave soon. This would be the last time anyone ever heard from Rachel. There would be one later sighting of Rachel by a neighbour in the early hours of the morning. The neighbour said a man in a white truck with brown lettering on the side was seen smoking and drinking with the young mother. When the neighbour checked 30 minutes later, they were both gone. The following day, Rachel's mother became concerned as she did not pick up her son as planned. This was extremely unlike Rachel, who was anxious about leaving her son overnight, and she would be always early for pickups. When her parents tried to call her on her phone, there was no answer. Police became suspicious when they discovered the young mother's purse and cell phone still in her home, and a massive search was quickly launched. 
Three days later, on March 19, 2013, a call alerted police to a body discovered down a steep roadside embankment near Old Orchard Road in Chilliwack, about 40 miles east of Mission. The terrain in the area being so steep, a search and rescue crew had to retrieve her remains. The following day, the remains were confirmed to belong to Rachel Panoski. Matthew was immediately considered the one and only suspect. This was based on the car seen by the neighbour matching the description of Matthew's car. And we know Matthew was there the night Rachel disappeared because she messaged her friend to say as much. Police also had circumstantial evidence, but none of this was enough to charge Matthew with anything related to Rachel's disappearance and murder and the Panoskis would have to wait another three years before they would receive any sort of justice. 2016, an undercover police officer befriended Matthew, disguised as the head of a criminal organisation by the name Mr Big. Matthew wanted to impress his new friend with his criminal history. He confessed to hitting Rachel on the head and pinning her down before suffocating her, by holding his hand over her nose and mouth. Matthew then took his half-sister's body to his home in Abbotsford, where he sexually molested her dead body before dumping her in the embankment in Chilliwack. Matthew told Mr Big the reason he did this was because he was upset that Rachel was acting like she was the victim because of what he did to her as a child that this angered him because he was the one who had to suffer through being arrested and charged and then going through the court process. All of the information that Matthew provided to the undercover police officer during his confession supported all of the evidence that investigators had gathered over the years. May 28, 2018. Matthew was due to go to court in a new Westminster courtroom for second-degree murder and two other counts of indignity to a human body. However, two days prior to this, Matthew's legal team entered a guilty plea on behalf of their client. So instead, the trial did not go in front of a jury and went straight to sentencing. In Canada, second-degree murder automatically attracts a life sentence, but the non-parole period can be set anywhere between 10 and 25 years. The defence argued that Matthew was a victim too, that he had an unstable childhood and was sexually molested himself at the age of eight by a female neighbour. The defence argued Rachel's murder was a traumatic incident in his life too and it led him to have panic attacks, sleepless nights, flashbacks and nightmares. And because of the murder, he was now being treated for depression, anxiety and post-traumatic stress disorder. Poor thing, I really feel for him. The judge dismissed all of this and called Matthew's behaviour as repulsive and set his non-parole period for 13 years, meaning with time served, he'll be eligible for parole in 2029. In her victim impact statement, Rachel's sister, Brittany Panoski, said, quote, Rachel was the victim. She was the only victim. Matthew is not the victim. He may present himself as a victim in order to get sympathy, but he is not the victim. That's the bottom line, unquote. Despite going through a lifetime of trauma in his short life so far, Rachel's son is apparently doing well and looks exactly like his mother, which helps keep her memory alive. 
they visit Rachel's gravesite on special occasions, including her son's birthday, where a gift is left behind for him on behalf of his mother. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Number four, Michael Howell. From the outside, the Howell family were perfect. Father Michael, a former Columbia County News Times sports editor, stay-at-home mother Christina, and two daughters, Sierra and Crystal. However, Crystal would soon become difficult. She was diagnosed with undisclosed mental health conditions. She would have problems with authority and was known to push limits. This caused a rift not only between Crystal and her parents, but between her parents as well. And when Crystal was 12 years old, Michael and Christina got divorced. Crystal would live between parents' home for some time, but after about a year, she would permanently reside with Michael, the two living in a remote eight-bedroom cabin on Sheepback Mountain in Maggieville, North Carolina. February 24, 2014. 17-year-old Crystal Howell and her father Michael were on a shopping trip together in Ingalls, North Carolina. During this trip, Michael apparently caught Crystal attempting to shoplift, and the two had a very public argument. It was then Crystal began to think about murdering her father. When the two returned home, Michael took a nap on the couch while Crystal had a shower. Allegedly, it was then that Crystal decided to put her plan into action. Once she got out of the shower, Crystal grabbed a shotgun and shot her father once in the head while he napped, blowing the back of his head off completely. Crystal then hid his body in a plastic container inside the family's storage shed. She then dumped the couch he was lying on and sold the shotgun she used for $20. Crystal then lived her best life after this point for the next month. She began driving her dead father's orange Land Rover, spending his money. She allowed several friends to move in, and she threw regular drug-fueled parties. Crystal even had a stripper pole installed in the kitchen. When her friends asked about Michael's whereabouts, Crystal told them he had moved to Georgia and then suicided by shotgun. March 19, 2014, Crystal called her mother Christina, who was now living in Augusta, Georgia. Crystal told her mother her father had released her from his custody. Christina told her daughter she would have to provide proof of emancipation before she would allow it. Despite this, Crystal showed up at Christina's home three days later, driving her father's orange Land Rover and pulling a U-Haul trailer filled with her belongings. This same day, March 22, 2014, two of Crystal's houseguests decide to move a pinball machine into the storage shed. While doing so, one of the men noticed the plastic container – Curious, he looked inside only to find Michael's heavily decomposed body. 
they immediately called the police and told them where to find Crystal. Crystal would be arrested at the local Motel 6, where she was staying with friends. When questioned by police, Crystal acted confused, like she didn't know what was going on. However, she would end up confessing and was charged with first-degree murder, concealing a death, and failing to report a death not from natural causes. The case went to trial in October 2016. Crystal Howe would be sentenced to 60 to 84 months in prison for the second charge, followed by a minimum of 25 additional years for the murder charge to be served before she can apply for a parole hearing. She will see out the term of the murder of her father at the North Carolina Department of Adult Corrections. Number 3. Kiara Henderson Early 2018, Dunwoody, Florida. 27-year-old Gavin Henderson had moved in with his mother Rochelle and three younger sisters. At that time, he had recently been released from prison in Florida after serving several years behind bars for violent crimes. Gavin had a long list of criminal convictions dating back as far as 2007 when he was 16 years old including robbery, false imprisonment and multiple parole violations. Gavin had violent tendencies towards his family members once he moved home. Prior to Kiara's death, Gavin had pulled a knife on one of his other sisters. No one called the police at that time. Rochelle decided it best to deal with the incident privately. I would assume this wasn't an effort to keep her son out of prison. On the afternoon of June 18, 2018, Gavin turned violent once again. He grew angry at 15-year-old Kiara because she was taking too long in the bathroom. When she opened the bathroom door, Gavin was waiting for her. He began punching the teen before she ran out of the apartment, while Kiara and her 12-year-old sister were banging on neighbours' doors looking for help. Gavin went into his bedroom and fetched from under his pillow a 10-inch hunting-style knife. Unfortunately, none of the neighbours would come to their aid. Kiara's 12-year-old sister called her mother, Rochelle, who was at work, who in turn called 911. Then the girl opened the front door of the apartment and witnessed a horrific sight. Her brother was stabbing her sister while she was screaming. Neighbours would later report to police, hearing Kiara's screams, No, please stop. According to statements he later gave investigators, Gavin knew the stabbing would undoubtedly send him back to prison, so he acted as if there was quote-unquote no turning back, after stabbing Kiara once and he just kept attacking her. Gavin fled the scene soon after the frantic attack. Kiara would die shortly after the paramedics arrived on the scene the medical examiner would later determine that Kiara had been stabbed 53 times, all over her body, both front and back, along with wounds to her hands and fingers from attempting to fight off her brother. Just before 3.30pm, another call was placed to 911, this time from a nearby dollar store. Gavin was there. He was still holding the knife he had used to kill his sister with only minutes earlier. The dollar store employee relayed to the 911 operator, quote, He had a knife, a big size. He put it on the counter. He asked, can you call the cops? I asked him why. He said there had been an accident. 
he was showing me blood on his hands and T-shirt, unquote. Police caught up to him at the dollar store and placed him under arrest with charges of murder, aggravated assault and first-degree cruelty to children. July 2001, Gavin Henderson was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus an additional 45 years for the assault and cruelty charges. Kiara Henderson wanted to be a lawyer when she grew up, and after her death, friends gathered at the high school football field to remember the teenager. They released balloons in her memory, quote, Kiara had a way with words, but sadly her voice has been silenced, unquote. Number two, Kaylee McMullen. During the early morning hours of June 29, 2017, in Norman, Oklahoma, Ronald McMullen Jr. called 911 and frantically told dispatchers his daughter had been shot in the face. The 911 operator asked Ronald if she had done this to herself, which Ronald confirmed she had. 22-year-old Kaylee was a bubbly former cheerleader. She loved animals and cherished her family. At the time of her murder, she was working as an EMT, but she dreamt of becoming a firefighter. Kaylee had been living with her father on and off prior to her death, but she had a deeply unhappy relationship with him. Family and friends would later describe Ronald as a very controlling father with abusive tendencies. In 2009, Ronald was accused of sexually abusing the then 14-year-old Kaylee. No charges were ever filed. In the months leading up to Kaylee's death, she had told her friends that her father had begun abusing her again, how he would climb into her bed and inappropriately touch her. He also allegedly slapped her in the face during an argument two days before her death, only stopping when Kaylee's mother, Karen, pulled out a gun to stop him. Paramedics and police officers were sent to the home. When they arrived, Ronald was covered in his daughter's blood but he kept trying to wipe it off with a towel in front of the police. He eventually had to be physically restrained from wiping the blood off as crime scene investigators took photographs of him. Ronald also exhibited other odd behaviour in front of the police. At one point, he began lying on the ground and covering himself with dirt and rubbing the shoes he was wearing, also covered in blood, on the concrete entryway. Ronald told police that Kaylee had been playing with a wheel gun that went off when he tried to take it from her. But when asked where the gun was, Ronald gave officers a blank stare and told them he didn't know where the gun was. Police would later state they believed the body and the gun were moved before they arrived. As police attempted to piece together the events over the following few days, they noticed many inconsistencies with Ronald's story. The gunpowder residue found on Kaylee's face indicated the gun was fired from around 18 inches away from her face. But if Kaylee had fired the gun, it could not have been more than 14 inches away, so the gun would have had to have been fired out of Kaylee's reach. Police were able to confirm that there was a gap in time between Kaylee's death and the time the police were called, because Ronald reportedly called Kaylee's mother Karen before calling 911. In fact, Karen was already on the scene when paramedics arrived, attempting to administer CPR on her daughter. 
Text messages revealed to the court also showed that Kaylee had gone on a date the night before she was killed. The messages suggest that her father had threatened to get her and bring her back home if she did not return immediately. The messages suggest that her father had threatened to get her and bring her back home if she did not return immediately. It's believed she arrived back home around 1am, with the 911 call being lodged at 5.45. It has been reported that both Kaylee and Ronald had been both drinking heavily that night. October 5, 2009. A jury found Ronald McMullen Jr. guilty for the first-degree murder of his daughter Kaylee McMullen. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Number 1. Jamie Haggard 27-year-old Jamie Haggard lived in Kenmore, Washington, where she split custody of her twin daughters with their father, Jake Rose. Unfortunately, in June 2016, Jamie had been struggling with depression. She had recently broke up with her fiancé. She was living with her half-brother, 45-year-old David Haggard, and they were both using drugs. They would fight often about methamphetamines and opiates. She was reportedly unhappy with both where she lived and the people in the area. Despite all of this, Jamie was a great mother and she had a good relationship with their father, Jake. Jamie and Jake had broken up years earlier when the twins were only babies and they had been successfully co-parenting ever since. Just days before her disappearance, Jamie told friends that she feared for her life. Another friend reportedly called the police after David allegedly sent him a photo of Jamie tied up in the bathtub. But by the time the police arrived at the house, Jamie denied that her brother had hurt her and instead blamed it on another guest in the house. In another incident, shortly before she vanished, David allegedly knocked her out and also told another person that he should kill her for all the trouble she was giving him. On the day she was last seen, June 16, 2016, Jamie was visiting her father Lee in Bothell, Washington, which is located around 15 minutes from Kenmore. According to Lee, Jamie seemed sad on this day. Both spent time with extended family members, but Jamie's sombre mood did not seem to improve. Jamie eventually left that afternoon, telling her family she was heading home. Jamie was officially reported missing the following day, June 17th, by her father Lee, after family members were unable to get in touch with her. No one believed she would leave her daughters behind, and because of this, police treated her disappearance as suspicious right from the get-go. About a month after her disappearance, Kings County Sheriff's Office excavated the backyard of Jamie's home. It is unclear what tips or evidence led investigators to excavate, but it was a dead end. No remains or any other clues were located. About a year later, May 25, 2017, there was another backyard search at a different home. Again, nothing of interest was found during this search either. It would be another whole year before there would be the next break in the case. May 2018, a Sonomish County litter cleanup team found a suitcase, a burnt red bedsheet, and a heavily decomposed body in a wooded area on Downs Road, 11 miles from Kenmore. 
The victim's skull and parts of her limbs were missing. The remains were decomposed to such an extent that sheriff's deputies could not even tell the gender of the person. About two months later, the medical examiner confirmed the remains belonged to Jamie. October 2019. Jamie's half-brother David Haggard was charged with Jamie's murder. The charges also allege that David made potentially incriminating statements. Several friends reported they thought they had seen Jamie in the months after she disappeared, twice. But David told the witnesses that he knew for a fact that this was not possible. David reportedly told friends that he would not be able to pass a polygraph. And the partially burnt sheet found with Jamie's remains matched the bed sheets found in David and Jamie's home. At the time David was charged with Jamie's murder, he was already behind bars for another crime, arson. David had set fires to hide evidence before. In 2016, he allegedly set fire to conceal that he stole appliances from a mobile home. But the crime he was currently in prison for was another 2016 incident, in which he burnt a forklift to hide his fingerprints after stealing a welder from a construction site. David Haggard remains behind bars awaiting trial later this year. Do you have something you would like to see mysteriously listed? Do you have a particular theme that interests you? Message us on Facebook at Mysteriously Listed and on Twitter at Mysterious List. If you like what you've heard today, we would love for you to share this episode on your social media of choice. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, we would appreciate it if you could leave a positive review and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Research, additional writing and hosting is by me, Ali. Music is by Mayu. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.